So a lot of bad news lately. You know, we have the, um, and I'm sure it's, I, it's on your mind. We have the mass shootings in Las Vegas, very recent. It's amazing how many, I guess because maybe we're in California, but everyone I've talked to seems to know somebody that was there or know somebody who knows somebody. May even have known someone that was injured or, or murdered. We have wars and rumors of war. You know, North Korea, now Iran's back in the mix, threatening that we better not change the sanctions or the deal we have with them, or there'll be consequences. Uh, destructive earthquakes, hurricanes, yeah? <clears throat> so, in light of all that, just two things. I could say, of course, a lot more, but uh, the importance of keeping an eternal perspective in the midst of all of this, just rem- remembering this is not our home, all right? This is not our home. Not if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. This is not your ultimate landing or dwelling. It's also a reminder that this world is broken. Really broken. Not only the world itself, but the people who dwell in it. Ruined by sin and their rebellion against God. And we uh, reap the consequences of that because we still live in this fallen and broken world so you know we just sing a song this world has nothing for me but that's a good reminder because the reality is many times that becomes our entire focus we need to hold the things of this world lightly homes can be swept away in a moment a life of a loved one or your own life gone in a second just attending a country concert. So we need to hold these things lightly and realize this is, this is not where we're going to find our ultimate satisfaction. It should, if we're thinking rightly, cause us to refocus, to set our mind on the things above and not on the things of this world, to certainly pray for these tragedies and for those affected by them, to certainly help if we can or how we can, to mourn, but not to be consumed by such things, but to be consumed even more so by Christ, the eternal one who has promised us an eternal home where there will be no more death, no more tears, no more sickness, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more tragedies. The other thing I would say is things of this nature, of this tragic nature, should cause us to pause. It should cause the world to pause and ask, are we ready for eternity? There's a passage in Luke 13. Let me just read it to you. It says this in Luke 13, 1 through 5, There were some present at that very time who told him, that is Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, the one in charge, the, the king in, in a sense, or ruler, better, Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So this is a tragic event. 
basically these people were killed and, and their blood was mixed in with their own sacrifices that they were making. Pagan people, but this was an awful thing that happened. And listen to what Jesus says. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he goes on to say, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus is not saying, you know, you're going to die in exactly the same way, in the same manner, but basically those people died unready to meet their maker, unready to meet the Lord. They weren't ready. They were pagans. They were sinners who had not yet turned unto God. And he's saying these should be a wake-up call to you that, listen, everyone is going to die one way or another, whether it be a hurricane or an earthquake or a serial mass killer or just your body gives out, you're going to die. And every time this occurs, you should stop and pause if you're not sure and ask, right? It's supposed to be a ding, ding, ding. Are you ready? Because that is your ultimate end, at least on this planet. Are you ready to meet your maker? I was just thinking about this. Some of the stuff coming out of Vegas, here's a phrase, and I've seen it happen in other places where tragedies happen, like the event in Boston. Right? So now the, the tag is Las Vegas strong, Boston strong. But added to that is, this will not change us. And I, on one level, maybe I could understand the idea and be okay with the idea of, you know, we're not going to hide. Uh, we're not going to still enjoy life. But is there anything that might need to change? Would you pause and stop for a moment and consider such things? Vegas? Where you walk on the street and it's laced with pornography? Literally? Vegas? This should be a moment for the world to stop and pause and certainly those that were there and associated with it and those who reside in that state and say, are we ready to meet our maker? Do we need to change some things in light of that? It's very dangerous, beloved, when these, I would say, warnings come and people ignore them and instead look to try to solve it so that it may never happen again. It's going to happen again. Unfortunately and sadly and tragically. This world has nothing for me. Jesus is all I need. And for so many, they can't say that. That's why they're so devastated, because this is all that they have. And it continually is removed and taken away and threatened. And instead of looking to the eternal one, they continue to say, I won't change and I'll keep 
my focus here in the temporary. I will not bow my heart and my mind and my soul to this God. They won't do it. I'm going to live life the way I want to live it, and no one's going to stop me. Warning after warning. Be grateful, beloved, if you're in the light. Thank God continually if you know him and you have the hope that he gives in Christ. Today, beloved, I want to speak to you about about a turn. A turn, and that's why I titled it The Turn, about a turn that when taken dramatically alters the path of a person's life for the better and makes them absolutely ready to meet their maker. Absolutely ready. It's a turn that I hope, and I'm always hoping and praying that people will take. Over the last 2,000 years, a multitude of people have thankfully made this turn. But sadly and tragically, many have refused and still refuse. I would imagine, I would think that there are certainly some right here in this room who have not yet made this turn. There are others that have, and we are thankful, and we praise God for that, and I rejoice with you in that, but certainly some here have not, and therefore they are not ready to meet their maker. We just, we think that life will go on forever? At least that, at least that should be a takeaway. You're attending a country concert, and the next thing you know, you're dead. Are you ready? If you have not made this turn, you are not ready. So we'll look at it. As most of you know, we have slowly been working our way through the first chapter, 1 Thessalonians. Today, We'll cover the last three verses of this chapter. We're going to finally make it through chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 8, 9, and 10. For a little context, we'll read verses 6 and 7, where Paul provided an additional reason uh, to the one he already stated in verse 5 for his conviction that the believers in Thessalonica had indeed been chosen by God, that he, and that he mentions in verse 4. So I'll pick it up in verse 6 for that context. And so he gives this additional reason. For believing that they are the elect of God. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers. Note that. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Again, let me remind you, those two, Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia they are the northern and southern provinces of Greece. Thessalonica, the city to whom Paul is, or at least the Christians there in that city to whom Paul is writing, Thessalonica existed in the northern province, or Macedonia, and Paul is writing this letter from Corinth, and uh, that city existed in the southern province of Greece, or Achaia. All right? So he says, you have become an example to all the believers in the country of Greece, basically. In verse 8 now, he goes on to explain how 
the Christians in Thessalonica became an example to all those in Greece. Okay, so that's where we're picking up today, and there's a little context for you. So let's do that. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.8. I'm going to pause as we read through this to make a comment um, before we finish out 8. So, verse 8. For, or here let me further explain, or this is why you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, or how you did. For not only has the word of the Lord, pause just for a moment there, the word of the Lord, that phrase is synonymous with the gospel. You could put that right in there, the gospel. But it's good to have that phrase as it is, the word of the Lord, because it speaks to the authority of the gospel. It is a message that comes from the Lord and delivered by his messengers. That happens to be all who are followers of Christ. We are to be his messengers, taking the word of the Lord to the lost, to this dying world. One writer says, because the gospel has a divine source, it is the word of the Lord, it can be proclaimed without apology or alteration. If men think of the gospel as only another philosophy among all the philosophies of the world, a philosophy that came about as a result of the reflection of maybe first century thinkers on religious topics, if that's how they think about the gospel, they will never have the burning zeal which sent the first Christian preachers through the world to proclaim what God had done for man. That message that we bring is not our own message, it's not the message of worldly philosophy or what some creative people thought up. It is indeed the word of the Lord himself. And that's why we bring it in love, but without apology and without alteration. It's his message. Do not dare trample with it. Do not water it down. Do not change it, not even a bit. But bring it with all the zeal that the Holy Spirit of God can muster inside of your soul. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere (laughs) so that we need not say anything. Baby church, about a year old, new believers. I like how the NET translates this passage. For from you, the message of the Lord has echoed forth, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Reports of your faith in God have spread so that we do not need to say anything. So he's explaining how it was that they had become an example to all the believers in Greece, these Christians in Thessalonica. That's what verse 8 is. So let me, let me quickly, again, this is all, we're revving up to the turn here in a moment, but this leads up to it. So what, what occurred historically? Something like this. So the new and joyful believers or Christians in Thessalonica shared with a great number of others the gospel or the message of the Lord that they had heard, yeah, that they had heard from Paul and his team, and... They shared the incredible news of what had happened to them. 
in hearing and believing and trusting in that word. This news is the news of their conversion or their saving faith in God. Now, it's helpful at this point to know or be reminded of something about the city of Thessalonica, just to understand better the passage and how these things could have occurred. It was a very busy city. Maybe like you could think of L.A. in, in some ways. Very busy. L.A. is a port city, or Long Beach maybe would be better. I don't know. But it, this Thessalonica was a port city. Um, so people were constantly traveling to it, and there, visiting from all over, it was also, it happened to have, uh, you know, because merchant ships were coming, so they would bring their cargo, and trade was taking place, and then travelers, maybe coming from Asia to the east, would travel across and land here in this port city in Thessalonica. So a lot of activity. Beyond that, there was this road that ran across Greece, and it ran, and it was used to travel uh, on land, across the country, but it ran through Thessalonica. And so there was just a lot of back and forth, a lot of people coming from all over the known world at that time, Rome, Asia, who would make their way into and maybe spend some time at and do business there in Thessalonica, okay? So the writer, one writer says, the strategic position of Thessalonica did much to further this rapid spread of the reports. Travelers coming to Thessalonica by land or sea soon heard about or came into personal contact with those believers, radiant amid suffering. Remember, they were suffering for their embracing of the gospel in this pagan land. What these travelers learned, those traveling through and to Thessalonica, was of such a striking nature that it became a ready topic of conversation wherever they went. Okay, so that's kind of the historical context. So much so, this happened, this occurred, people coming in, the Christians in Thessalonica speaking forth the gospel, uh, telling of their faith in God, and, and they would receive this, and it was incredible what was, had occurred. And so then they, as they traveled, made their travels along the way, they would also report these things to others because it was a really big deal. But Paul says this, in every place reports your faith in God is spread. So basically, he says, so that we do not need to say anything. We don't have to say anything because the reports are already there about what had occurred. Then in verses 9 and 10, Paul explains why he and his team didn't need to say anything about Thessalonica to others they encountered. And then he goes on to provide a summary of those reports that, they were, that Paul was getting or hearing. And remember, he's in Corinth a ways away from Thessalonica. But again, also an important city of commerce and travel and visiting. Uh, Corinth was more like Vegas, actually. That would be very close as far as just the corruption, but a very active, busy city. A lot going on there. So, Paul says here this in verse 9, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So again, the four in verse nine is explaining what he just said. This is why we do not need to say anything, for they themselves are reporting concerning what happened. And here's what they're reporting. That's it. That's simply it. That's the passage. 
Another translation of these verses that I wanted to share with you is this, because I like it. It says, for people everywhere, again, the people that Paul was coming into contact with, and as I mentioned to you, Paul's in Corinth, so they travel through, they're traveling from all over, and they're They know what happened in Thessalonica. They may not even be residents there, but they know because the word is spreading rapidly. For people everywhere report how you welcomed us and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, our deliverer from the coming wrath. So you could put it this way. Paul is saying we do not need to tell other people about it. Other people tell us. And that in that way, it was true of the Thessalonian Christians, those in Thessalonica, that they were examples to all those in Greece. Sharing the gospel, sharing their faith in God, and spreading the good word that others might know and hopefully believe and trust. Okay? Living out the gospel there in a pagan land. And it was no small thing, beloved, as I already mentioned. I, I, think, I think we lose uh, sight of that sometimes. You have to remember, this was the first introduction of the gospel into dark, dark, dark territory, right? It's not like America where the gospel's kind of made its way around already. Yeah, yeah, the gospel, I've heard it already, blah, blah. We're kind of living in a post-Christian, not kind of, we are living in a post-Christian world at this point. Uh, People like, yeah, I've heard it, I know all about that, which they don't really, but they think they do. You got anything else? It's a little different. This came in, it was new, they had not heard this, and they were pagan, generally speaking. There was a Jewish community, but it was primarily uh, also a pagan land, okay, filled with pagans, the worship of false gods, who they believed to be true gods. So, This change that took place in a portion of the population was significant. It was a a reversal from how things had always been done in society and and as they lived. It was huge news, as our president might say. Uh, One writer points out, idolatry, because idolatry was inseparably connected with all phases of pagan life. And that's what this was. They lived a pagan life. A conversion then that led to the rejection and renunciation of idols was indeed a revolutionary experience. Uh, And he says it makes sense then when, if you remember, you might not remember when this occurred, the Jews got a crowd together to try to get Paul and his missionary preaching team out. They didn't want them there because they didn't like him preaching Jesus. But he was, they, they were able to gather up a large crowd, and they said, these men have turned the world upside down. In a real sense, in a very real sense, they had. They, turned, they were turning Thessalonica up, upside down, right? Because all of a sudden, this was a total transformation. Deny all the gods that we've always worshipped? Worship this one alone? Whoa. And people were responding. The elect of God were being saved. It would be like, I could, the only way I could think of it today, or one way I could think of it or illustrate what occurred there and the significance of it, is imagine a portion of a Muslim community that is com- completely Muslim. It's like an Islamic, we're in an Islamic country, okay? And imagine a whole town within that Islamic country, right? They, their practice is that of Islam, and so with that go certain things, like praying five times a day and 
There's other practices. There's the way their food is done. It's all, it's not a part of their culture. It is their culture. All right? So every part of their life is impacted by their religion. And then all of a sudden, the gospel comes in and they turn away from their false god because that is what he is. He is not the God of the Bible. And they turn to the true and living God and the change that that would end up making in their life would be certainly evident and dramatic in the context because they would forego then or stop doing all the other things that they were doing because of their Islamic faith. It would be that kind of, do you know what happened in Uba'a town, can you believe these people have abandoned Allah and they have turned to Jesus? It would be very significant because you have years and years and, and generations of Allah worship or Islamic worship in the same way pagan worship. It is what you did. Your mom and dad were pagans. You grew up as pagans. Your neighbors were pagans, right? So very significant if you can try to capture that in your minds. A big deal, and that's why the news was spreading. Uh, or at least it certainly, it was spreading because the Thessalonians were, Christian Thessalonians were making it known, but the news that they were making known was of a significant sort, especially in light of the circumstances, historical circumstances. So having looked at all that, now I want to, with the remainder of my time, Consider the contents of the reports Paul was hearing. The contents of the reports that Paul was hearing. And we'll do that first by looking back at verse 9. For they themselves, these people that Paul is coming to contact with, explaining why he doesn't even have to say anything because he's being told what has already occurred. He doesn't even have to make it known, the great thing that God did because those in Thessalonia... The Christians are making it known, and then others are repeating it to others and traveling abroad and saying, I can't believe it's such a significant, you see what happened in Thessalonica. He says, for they themselves report how you turn to God. How you turn to God. This is the turn that I said earlier dramatically alters the path of a human being's life for the better, and makes them absolutely ready to meet their maker. The verb translated, you turned, you turned, is a word used repeatedly in Acts, the book of Acts, in relation to the salvation of God, the salvation of the sinner. So let me show you a few of those. Christians came and preached the gospel in Antioch. Antioch was a pagan town. Okay, filled with pagans. And Acts 11.21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, the preachers, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Same word. Acts 14.15, Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, a pagan town. And it says there, We bring you good news that you should... Turn from these vain things. What? 
their paganism, these useless, worthless things, their idolatry, their idols, their false religion. We bring you good news that you should turn from those very things to, you're turning from that and to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Acts 26, 17 and 18, Paul recounting Jesus' words to him says, and Jesus is, these are Jesus' words to Paul, I am sending you, Paul, to open their eyes. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. I'm sending you unto them, these pagans, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Turn from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Christ is speaking. Paul then explaining himself to the king says in Acts 26, 19 through 20, giving a defense of himself, he says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but I but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and through all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What? That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. The word is used, this word, uh, is also used just in a physical sense. And so that helps us understand how we should view it in a spiritual sense. It's used in a physical sense in Mark 5.30. There it says, and Jesus, perceiving in himself, he's walking through the crowds, that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? So Jesus is walking. He senses something has occurred. He turns about and asks the question. You got it? That's the idea of turn. It's, in a sense, a U-turn. All right? So in a spiritual sense, when it's being used that way in relation to salvation and a turning to God, it is a turn then that alters the course of one's life so that they are no longer moving in the opposite, or they are now moving, I would say, they are now moving in the opposite direction. In the opposite direction. In the same way Jesus is walking, it says he turns, he's now in the opposite. He's not that way, he's this way, yeah? So in the spiritual sense, it has the same idea. A turning from God means a turning from something else and moving now in the opposite direction. What that means, beloved, is that before one turns, they are not moving towards God. They are not, okay? Before they turn to God, if the turn means move and go in the opposite direction, that means before they were doing that, they were going in the opposite direction from God. You with me? So they might have been, and many are, very religious. Very Pagans were religious people. I mean, more so than Christians even, as far as their practice and how it impacted their entire life. But in all of that religiosity, they were not moving, not a step towards God. 
in all the false gospels that are embraced in our country and in our world, all the false religions that have a stamp of God on them, they are not moving even one step closer to God, but rather further and farther away with every step they take. You gotta know that. You gotta realize that. That's why it's such a desperate thing and a serious thing. They might be religious people, And maybe you're here and you're religious. In some sense, you attend. But you have not yet truly turned to God. Then in a sense, you are, in a very real sense, you're not any closer. You're moving farther and farther away along your path. Have you ever really turned to God? Has there been a spiritual U-turn of sorts in your life? A U-turn has there been. That's what occurred for those in Thessalonica. That's what occurs really for any genuine, authentic believer of Jesus Christ. There is a turn. They now move in the opposite direction from which they were headed. They were headed away from God in their rebellion. Now, by the grace of God, by hearing the gospel, by the work of the Spirit, they turn. And now they face God. Now they see him. Now they're moving in the right direction. Notice that in turning to God, they forsook their idols. For they themselves report how you turn to God, now moving in the opposite direction, spiritual U-turn, you turn to God from idols. Again, it's a, it was a, It's always a big deal, but just understand the historical nature of what occurred, particularly there. Thessalonians could see Mount Olympus, about 50 miles south of their city. So what? So what? That's where their gods lived. They're constantly reminded of it. That's where they thought. They're imaginary gods, gods they believe to be true. That's where they live. That, on Mount Olympus, that's where Zeus resided. I find this so fascinating, too, as I think through these names of these gods and how many are in our, all of our Disney shows we watch. I'm not trying to say anything about Disney. I just, it seems like they're, they're still, they continue to come back. So Zeus, Poseidon, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, Hermes. Any of those sound familiar? Because they're still in our culture today. And of course, we make light of them. I get it in just Greek mythology, whatever. They believe, it wasn't to them, it was this is the truth. These are gods that we worship. And they have this gigantic mountain they look at and there they are and they're constantly reminded. They turned from all of that. They abandoned it all. What happened was no small thing. And that's why it didn't go unnoticed. It was significant. So having turned to God, they necessarily turned away, beloved, from their idols or their gods and they turned their back on them. That's the idea. They turned their back on them. They forsook them. They disowned them. They rejected them. Notice, beloved, they did not add the God of the Scriptures of the Bible to the collection of gods they already had. Within paganism, it would be no problem. That's why Rome and Greece could could co-mingle. Rome had its own gods. You know, the Greeks had their own gods. Who cares? Just a bunch more gods. Bring them on in, baby. You know, let's, we'll enjoy your gods, you enjoy our gods. 
But there was something different about the one and only true God, because there is only one, right? So they could not and they did not add this God to their long list of gods, you know, keeping them. Well, we'll keep them. Yeah, sure. Come on, Paul. What God you got? Sure. It's not possible. They could no longer embrace their fake and dead idols or their false and worthless religion. Why? Because the one true and living God could not and cannot coexist with idolatry. That is why turning to him, they turned away from their idols. You, you, can't, you can't have both. It's not possible. You can try in foolishness, but it's not possible. And they recognized that and they turned away. And they turned away from all that meant in the sacrifices and in the practices and the daily life as they revolved around their idolatry and their idols. They, got, they, got, they did away with it. Took them out, threw them out of their house, no longer part of their life in turning to God. God who actually exists, the true and living God, the creator and ruler of all, beloved, they knew the truth now. He is the only one worthy of all of our worship, right? They, they came into the light. In light of God, these things are pathetic, worthless, vain, and dead, in light of God, the one true living God. He alone, in light of who he is, the holy one, the exalted one, he alone is worthy of all our religious devotion. This is how you should think too, Christian. He alone, he alone is worthy of giving our life to. In light of when you come to the realization and knowledge and the truth of the one true and living God. That's the kind of impact it should have on you. There is nothing else worthy of worship. He alone. He alone should have an exalted place in my life. The exalted place. He alone should rule over me. He alone. Christian. And that is because they understood that, they got rid of all those other things that had rule over them, that they gave themselves to, that they worshiped, that they devoted themselves to. They cast it all aside. They turned their backs. Why? Because they turned to God. They really turned to God. One writer comments that perhaps few in America bow down before a literal statue. Right? I don't probably, I hope not. Uh, I mean, there are maybe Buddhists maybe in our country, but generally speaking, it's not a part of our culture. You know, statues, idols. But he goes on to say, an idol is anything that usurps the rightful place of the living and true God in your life. At the root of all idolatry is the God of self. Many people leave this God on the throne and then try to use Jesus to get what self wants. There's even gospels that promote such nonsense. So they try to get happiness and health and wealth and love or whatever they want with the help of this Jesus. But to leave self enthroned and to use Jesus as a new idol to get what self wants 
is not to turn to God from idols. The Thessalonians did not just add Jesus to their existing shelf full of idols. They trashed their idols and turned to the living and true God alone. That's Christianity. And the process, beloved, that begins at salvation, this turning to God and abandoning those other things, those worthless things, continues in the believer's life, right? Because our hearts are idol factories, constantly turning out idols, things that are looking to replace God in our lives, looking to take our devotion and our love and our service, looking to to have us serve them. And so anytime that our heart spews out one of those things, in turning to God, we turn from it. We repent of it. We call it what it is, dead and lifeless and worthless. Yeah? We continue to repent. Now we see that in turning to God from idols, they begin to serve the living and true God. Look at this. This this is picture, a snapshot of coming to Christ, of true faith. That's what this is. And it's all centered around this turn. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, for they themselves report how you turn to God and then necessarily from idols and in turning to God to serve the living and true God. Living and true, that's Paul's way of just Sticking it to those idols one more time and exalting the very nature of God. It is meant to be a contrast with the dead and false idols they once served. You turned to God from those idols to serve, not dead and worthless idols, but to serve the exalted one, the holy one, the true, authentic, real, and not dead and not a piece of metal, but the living God, the one that can actually come to you and help you and love you and strengthen you and change you and transform you and one day bring him into his kingdom. That one, that's the one you, that's the one you serve now. You served foolishness before. You were trapped in darkness How sad, but now how glorious in turning to God, you now serve him. So they stopped serving their idols, right? And they begin to serve the one and true God. The tense of this verb, they served, it, it denotes that it was a life of continual, complete, and wholehearted service to God. Continual, complete, and wholehearted service to God. You are, you're not like you serve for a while. You are serving him entirely, this God that you turn to. The Christian life is necessarily the Christian life, the authentic Christian life, not the one that is by name only, by just a profession. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, like association. Not that one. The one that is by transformation, by rebirth, by genuine, authentic, real, saving faith, repentance, that one, the one in which one truly 
goes the opposite direction and turns unto God from the path that they were on. That one is a life of service unto God. One writer says this, and I I wholeheartedly, 100%, agree. The claim to have turned to God is manifestly bogus if it does not result in serving the God to whom we have turned. We must not think of conversion only in negative terms as a turning away from the old life. Certainly that is a part of it, a real part of it, but also we must think of it positively as the beginning of a new life of service. Beloved, think about this. These Thessalonians served their idols with devotion, with zeal, with passion, with regularity, with commitment. They're idols because they believe them to be gods. Now how odd it would be if they did not serve the true and living God that they had now turned to. Would that not be weird? Wouldn't you question that? Wait a minute. So you serve these dead gods, but you you serve them because you thought they were real and alive, but now having come to know they were nothing because now you've come into the light by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, you've seen the truth and you know and have turned to the true and living God, only one creator of all kind, the sovereign one, the sustainer of all And you don't serve him? You know? Or maybe half the zeal that you served your pagans? Your pagan idols? Does that, would that be weird? Huh? Yes or no, would that be weird? So we we have idols in our lives, right? We turn... We've turned from, you know, at the point of conversion, we see, all right, we're turning from that. We're turning from our false religion. We gave ourselves to that. Now we've turned to God, the one who's actually God, the one who redeemed us, bought us with the precious blood of his son. Oh my goodness. Is it not odd then that we would give less devotion or zeal or commitment to him? It is odd. It is odd. It is weird. It is not right. The Thessalonians were serving God, but beloved, they were giving themselves to him. And think about it. When one serves God, what does that even mean? Well, if you were to serve someone, generally, let's just be real general, you're going to do what pleases them. Yeah? I mean, if you're a servant of another, you're basically at their beck and call, and you are, you are complying with their desires, their wishes, their commands. Yeah? And so, really, no different. In the one who serves God, then, who is serving God, the idea is that he would comply, he or she would comply with what God wants, what God desires, what pleases God, what he has commanded. Yeah? I just think about, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break. I'm going to come back to this. I don't know how, but somehow I'm going to do that. Maybe. Let's see. Maybe I won't. But listen, 
I think about this service unto God. That's the picture, okay? It was, it, was, it was not slight. It was significant. In other words, they didn't just stop serving their idols. They began to serve God. They were doing what he desired. So I, I would, at minimum, they're meeting together as the body. They are loving one another. They are encouraging one another. They're making the gospel known. It's already been addressed. That was true because everyone's hearing about it. They're telling of what had occurred in their life when Jesus Christ came into it. They are serving God. They are moving away from their sin that they used to practice willfully and happily and moving on to the righteousness that God has called them to. You can see it. That's why it's known. That's why people are talking about it. They're serving this God. They used to serve their idols. No longer they're serving this God. All right? I think modern day Christianity, or at least American Christianity, they hear something like we're to serve God, and they think to some degree that means we go to church. You go to church? Well, that would certainly be a part of what it means to serve God, that you attend with the local body because you're part of the local body? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. But is that the extent? Is that the extent? Because if that's the extent, there's something wrong. And honestly, even that, I mean, many, the attendance of many, even if we're just to take that, is, uh, you know, not great, <laughs> So like even in that, even if that's the model of it, it's like, okay, yeah, off and on, I attend here and there when I can, you know, when I get around to it. Wait, I don't, that's not service unto God. Service unto God is doing those things he desires, those things he commands, those things that he wishes, those things that please him. And it doesn't just show up on Sunday. It shows up on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. Yeah? Yeah. Beloved, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it here because I can't go further. So I'll come back. I don't know how. Thomas, help me. I don't know what to do, brother. Let me tell you what happens. I don't have enough to, to cover next time, so I'll have to figure it out. But I can't keep going because it's just not right to the children's ministry workers or to those of you who are hungry. But honestly, I don't care about that. I do care about the children's ministry workers. So let me, clo- let me, clo- let me end with that one. We'll come back. The world, we've talked about this in the men's study, and you've probably seen it before or heard about it or read about it in your scriptures or studied it, but the world, this fallen world, our flesh, our unredeemed flesh, our, the devil, they're all working against us uh, to do damage to our service or to retard it, to diminish it, right? So I don't, I, I preached last Sunday, and a brother came up to me and goes, you know, after that message I preached, and he says, thank you, you've convinced me I'm not a believer. So uh, that is not my, my and he was, he was joking. He was just saying it was a tough one. He had to think about what, is, you know, what it is to be a follower of Christ and so on and so forth, you know, having these attributes, so on and so forth. But I, I always want to balance this. This is, this is a, a, a picture we see of real, true, genuine Christianity. They were Christians, uh, for sure, in Thessalonica. Uh, but let me remind you, it's been about a year. So, you know, they're on fire. Honestly, I mean, everything's fresh and new to them. So I wonder if Paul came back in 20 years, if um, it would look exactly the same. Maybe, maybe better, 
Maybe not so. And I say that only because in our Christian lives, we, when it starts off, generally the, the idea is you start off strong, right? You're making him known. You want to tell what happened about your faith in God, and you want to serve him, and you're looking for all these ways to serve him. And then something happens, and time sets in. And so it, it, it's not necessarily that because you, you don't see this as it should be seen entirely in your life, that's because you're not a believer. It could be you just allowed other things to creep in back into your life and crowd out the truths of the gospel and the realities of them. It could just be that. I mean, if there's no indication of this and you're not serving God and you are serving anything else or you're following a false God, then no, you're not a believer. You're not a believer. You're not a, you're not a genuine saved individual. You're not. If you're living continually and willfully and joyfully in your life of sin, you're not a believer, you're not a believer, you're not a believer, you're not. You're not. You're not. And you need to turn to God before it's too late. You need to turn. But if you've, you've seen the evidences of this in your life, and, but you're, you know your service is not, you know it's not what it should be, You've allowed some idols to creep back in. What do you do? What do you do? Just go, well, I mean, everyone else is doing it. I guess it's okay. What do you do, Christian? What do you do? You repent, man. You repent. Thank you, Thomas. You turn. You repent. You repent. The the Christian life begins in, is born out of repentance and continues in that path. Now, in light of God and who he is, so worthy of my life, I continue to repent of anything and everything that comes into it and tries to diminish him. Tries to take away the glory of him and his son and the salvation I possess. I repent. I call it what it is. Wicked, evil, vile. It dwells in me, I know, and I hate it. I turn through the power of the Spirit back to Him. I repent. I turn my back to it. Beloved, Christians are not perfect, yes. Yes. But a Christian will imperfectly follow the perfect one. They will. They'll have dips, they'll have challenges. They'll have frustrations, but they will continue on that path because they turn to God. And once they do, he does not let go of them. And by his grace, he holds on to them. But when I say that, he uses means, and so he calls you through his word and by the power of his spirit to stay the course, to keep your eyes fixed, and to repent of anything and everything that takes away from the glory of God and the salvation you have in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to learn from your word. And Father, may it do a work in us who are, are yours by your grace, by your saving grace, by your love, by your electing love, by the power of your spirit that now dwells in us. Do a work in us. Father, even reveal to us now the things that need to be revealed. Bring conviction where it is necessary, Father. And may we respond to it not by ignoring it or hoping it will go away, 
but by embracing it and thanking you for it and responding to it, by repenting and, and setting the course anew, by putting off and putting on those things that we need to. And Father, for those that are here who none of these things have ever been true in their life, they've never really served you, not faithfully, not fully. They've never had this desire for you. They, they still live in their false philosophies. They, they, they have only maybe added you, God, or added Jesus to their big mess of stuff. They have never turned. They have never turned their back on their broken past and their sin and turned unto you, God. Father, for them, especially in light of all the warnings over and over again. What is your life but a vapor? It appears for a very short time and then vanishes away. You never know when you'll take your last breath. Father, for them might they hear the warning bells and respond to the mercy and grace that you have poured out in your Son, Jesus Christ. Might they confess their sinfulness and their guilt before you, agreeing that they deserve your wrath for their rebellious life. And might they bow their hearts and their knee before Jesus and ask him to save them according to his power and his saving work. We ask all of this, Father, for your glory, for your glory in this little local body. In Jesus' name, amen.